0: Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Before I begin today's episode, I wanted to ask for your help with something. If you listen on iTunes, you've probably seen their list of podcasts designated as COVID-19 essential listening. I've reached out to Apple to ask them to include Shelter-in-Place on that list, but I need your help. If you could take a moment to go to iTunes, rate Shelter-in-Place, and write a quick review of what you like about the show, I would be so grateful. A little over a week ago, I celebrated my quarantine birthday by going out for a run in my neighborhood. I didn't think much of it. I've been running most days for the past 25 years. My thoughts on that particular run were nothing special. I was tired, a little bored of my usual route, and grumpy that my foot was still hurting from an injury nearly two years old. This past Friday, another runner had a birthday too. But he never got the chance to celebrate. Because on February 23rd, just a couple of weeks before we began sheltering in place, Ahmad Arbery was killed. He was jogging through his neighborhood when two men chased him in their pickup and shot and killed him. He was 25 years old. He was unarmed. Like me, he was just out for a run. Maybe you've seen the chilling Nicholas Smith painting of Ahmad in a tuxedo, his eyes forever closed in death and his mouth open with words he will never get to speak. On Sunday, while my kids were surprising me with homemade cards and cleaning the house— Ahmad's mother Wanda spent her first Mother's Day without him. Surely that day in February, Ahmad had no idea that his daily run would be his last. But maybe that's not quite right to say he had no idea he was in danger. Maybe danger was something Ahmad had been dodging all of his life. My friend Biana Kamani posted something on Instagram this past week that revealed to me the assumptions beneath my seemingly harmless thought that Ahmad had always felt just as safe as I do when I go for a run. In his post, Biana wrote, I grew up in the South, Houston, a black boy from immigrant parents running track, playing outside, and had a pretty good childhood. However, it was commonplace to have racial slurs yelled at me, beer bottles thrown. Pickup trucks threatening to run you off the road or sprain debris. It goes without saying that the perpetrators were white. I was a good kid. No serious problems, good grades, stellar athlete, full scholarship to college. I was that dude. But I am black, and that comes with consequences. My freshman year at Baylor University, we had an amazing recruiting class that included a few of the friends I grew up running with. We were asked to pose for a few pictures for the local newspaper. Cool, I thought. We took the pictures, they wrote the story, and life went on. When the story was released, I was called into the coach's office. They showed me the paper, and there I was, kneeling, hands crossed over my knee, trying to look stoic at best. The next words hit hard. Are you showing a gang sign? I didn't answer. I just cried. I don't remember if I got an apology, but in that moment, I felt diminished. Had it been a white athlete, would they be under question? I've run all over the world, and racism is everywhere. This is not an American problem. It is not a black problem. Bayano is a former Olympian. In 2004, he placed fifth in Athens in the 400-meter hurdles. Today, he works for Adidas. He posted his words with the hashtag, Run with Ahmad, and included a photo of the Adidas runners in Los Angeles after they completed a run through Leimert Park, one of L.A.'s historic black neighborhoods. Baiano says of the photo, This is what running should be like, an opportunity to share a common experience with uncommon people. This is what sport should be. It should be understood regardless of race, culture, or language. Bayano and his wife, Lachey, have been good friends of ours for 12 years, but this is the first time I've heard him talk openly about the racism he's experienced. I think this says more about me than it does about Bayano. Why, in all of our times of hanging out, did I never ask him if he's been on the receiving end of racism? Why did I assume that he hadn't been? Did I carry the silent assumption that because he was successful and talented, he'd been spared the injustice that so many others in this country have lived with all their lives? Or did I refrain from asking because it was easier to say nothing, to pretend that our country's ugly history of oppression isn't still informing our reality today? Oakland is a place where we talk a lot about these things. A lot of the choices our family has made, like which public school to send our kids to, have come from a desire to engage in that conversation. My church founded a nonprofit that hosts annual Bay Area-wide events to give a megaphone to people of color who are working hard to end racism. It's not news to me that racial profiling and racism exist. But this past week, I'm realizing in a new way that how I move through this world without fear is a privilege I'm too quick to assume is shared by others. One of the things that pushed me to that place is a story in Outside Magazine by Allison Mariella Dacier, a fellow writer, runner, mother, and coach. Allison was named by Women's Running as one of 20 women who are changing the sport of running in the world, and by the route 100 as one of the most influential African Americans ages 25 to 45. Her nickname, Powderfeet, comes from the Haitian Creole saying that describes a person so active that you never see them, just the footprints of where they've been in powder. In her story, Amad Arbery and Whiteness in the Running World, Allison writes, over the following days, I had conversations with many black and brown runners about the fear and trauma this case reignited in us. We already knew that doing normal, everyday things could make us targets of police and vigilante violence like this. But this one still hit us too close to home, at a moment where the world was already in chaos thanks to COVID-19. We discussed the disproportionate death toll of the pandemic in Black and brown communities and the over-policing in Black and brown neighborhoods. This case is exactly why we never go running alone at night— And this is why we fear wearing masks to cover our faces, even though we know it is to protect us from another deadly threat. I thought about a movement that had emerged recently in the running community, one that was concerned with so-called runner safety. Where were their voices? Where were their outcries? But the larger running community, the white running community, remained silent until yesterday, two and a half months after Arbery was killed and nearly two weeks after the New York Times first reported on the case. I fumed quietly until the horrific video was released earlier this week. I gathered myself and watched the video, a mistake, and took to social media to call out the running media and finally ask, Where is everybody? This lit a fire in the global running community in a way that I could not have predicted. Suddenly, there was viral interest in what had happened to Ahmad and cries for justice from people who boldly admitted they had never heard of Ahmad before. I wondered, but don't these same people read the New York Times? The responses were mostly appropriate, but all too late. And I worry they were just a moment in time rather than part of a commitment to dismantling white supremacy and the systems that make a murder like Ahmad's possible and even despicably mundane. Even though I've been actively seeking out difficult conversations about racism in this country for years and doing my best to talk less and listen more, this past week has forced me to reckon with racism in a new way. When I reached out to Allison to ask her permission to quote her story, I admitted to her that her words made me uncomfortable, not because of the content, but because... I'm one of the people whose response was too late. I can make excuses about having three young children and being too overwhelmed by the challenges of daily life to keep up with the news, but Bayano and Allison's words call me out and force me to dig deeper. To admit that I'm complicit in a system that makes it unsafe for people of color to enjoy the same privileges I do. I need to be outraged enough to speak up, not just when I finally get around to it, but every day. If I don't cry out at the daily injustices, but only when another young black man is murdered, then I am too late. Allison goes on to say, It is time for white people in the running community to cultivate a white identity that is separate from white supremacy. That means committing to anti-racism and social justice. She recommends starting with two books that I've learned a lot from, White Fragility and Me and White Supremacy. It is time for white people in the running community to take each other to task in spaces and rooms where there are no black people or other people of color. If you as a white person ever find yourself in a place where everyone is white or mostly white, including at your workout, then there is a problem and you are perpetuating it. And it is time for white people in the running community to recognize the humanity of black people, indigenous people, and other people of color, and raise up our stories as if they were their own. This week, as I read Allison and Bayano's words, I'm reckoning with my own inaction. I'm recalling conversations I've had in the past with friends who wondered aloud why we can't just stop talking about slavery and white privilege and get on with life. Wouldn't it be better if we just put the past behind us, they would say? I would leave those conversations angry and exasperated, but also proud of myself for being one of the people who got it. Today, I realize how completely blind I've been to my own sins. Because it isn't enough to say that racism is wrong. No matter how much I talk about justice and equality for all, my words mean nothing without action. In the past... I've been too afraid to speak up, too worried that if I opened my mouth, I would say the wrong thing and offend someone. It's been easier to be silent, to support my black and brown brothers and sisters in word, but not necessarily in deed. And so I want to say here and now that I am deeply sorry to every person in this country and in this world who has felt afraid because of the color of their skin I am sorry to Ahmad's mother, Wanda. I'm sorry that instead of speaking up, I stayed quiet and kept my head down. Even now, it makes me extremely uncomfortable to talk about it because I will probably get it wrong at least some of the time. I wanna invite my friends of color who are listening to help me get it right. I will not accept the bloodshed of any more young men and women who have been killed because of the color of their skin. I will not tolerate a world where we don't scream and outrage until it stops. I want to end today not with my words, but with Allison's. If you found yourself uncomfortable reading this, please know that my discomfort writing this far exceeds yours. To what extent am I now a target for speaking truth to power? I don't know how my words will be picked apart and shredded and which doors may close as a result of writing this? What I do know is that I am speaking passionately from the heart about difficult things. And I don't have all the answers, but I am willing to do the work. Are you? If you've enjoyed today's episode of Shelter in Place, the best way you can support it is to subscribe rate and review it on iTunes so others can find it too. Shelter in Place is sponsored by Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. I am so grateful to be sponsored by a small local business that isn't just committed to making great wines, but to making this world a better place. Get 10% off your order when you use the promo code SHELTER at brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com. When you buy wine, you support this show and also other businesses that are working toward more sustainable living. The Shelter-in-Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. And the Shelter-in-Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter-in-Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.